for us. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I want to continue to orient all of us as to where we are in the letter, especially for some of the newer faces in the room. I pray that this is helpful. The most recent sermon that I preached in uh, this letter of Galatians, verses 6 through 9, two, two, three weeks ago now, we considered this distortion, this perversion of the gospel that was being proclaimed, that was being taught by false teachers in the Galatian church, churches, I should say. And so as we considered that perversion and that distortion, I described it sort of bullet point form right now. I described it this way. The false teachers in the Galatian churches were telling those Galatian Christians that alongside faith in Jesus, works of the law were necessary for salvation. So it does seem, as we consider, that circumcision was particularly in view at points, but Paul also throughout the letter will speak in general terms about works of the law. And the way that that we stated that perversion, we considered that it's important to say that they were teaching, the false teachers were teaching that alongside faith in Jesus, works were necessary. That's the critical piece of this. Because see, they were not, it doesn't seem, based on the way Paul writes this letter, it doesn't seem that the false teachers are pitting faith in Jesus over and against works of the law. In other words, they're they're not saying that you are saved completely by works. It's not it at all. What they're doing is more subtle and it's more dangerous. It's this addition, this small addition of this thing, keeping the law and the traditions of the fathers, right, that we're going to put next to faith in Christ for your justification, your reconciliation to God. So again, it's not that they were saying that you're justified by keeping the law, but it's that you could not be justified without keeping the law. That's the distortion of the gospel that Paul is addressing throughout this letter. This kind of Jesus plus. Yes, trust Christ. Faith in Christ. You're justified in one sense that way, but these works and keeping these traditions are also necessary in order for you to be saved. 
And so it's very important that we keep that distortion, that perversion in view today and honestly in every one of these sermons because we're not going to rightly understand what Paul is addressing if we don't have that in view. So keep that in in your mind and kind of look at the verses that we're even considering today through that lens. This is what Paul is combating. And so we're picking up today, as I already said, in verse 10 of chapter 1. And if you put your eyes there, you'll see that in verse 10, Paul begins responding to charges that were being made against him. You can read the letter and tell that these false teachers were charging Paul with things in an attempt to undermine his ministry, an attempt to undermine his gospel, the gospel that he had preached to the Galatian Christians. So essentially from chapter 1 and verse 10 all the way through chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul is going to be responding to charges that these false teachers have made against him. And remember, he's preaching this gospel of justification by faith in Jesus apart from works. And he's then preaching implication of that life in the spirit, not under the code of the law. So the first charge that was being made against him was that he was preaching this gospel, faith alone, life by the spirit, apart from works, not under the law. He was preaching that gospel because he was aiming to please people. That was the accusation. Namely, he was aiming to please his Gentile audience. He was telling them, oh, don't worry about circumcision. Don't worry about food laws and ceremonial laws, all these things, these traditions. Don't worry about them. You know, and you're only doing that, Paul, because it's what your audience wants to hear. You can tell that from verse 10. We're going to unpack that more in a moment. That's the first charge. The second charge that's being Waited, levied against him, I should say, is that he was preaching a gospel that he had wrongly gotten from men, not God. That he was preaching some man-made gospel that he had received from inferior teachers. That's what we're going to be looking at basically in verses 11 all the way through verse 24 of chapter 1. We're going to consider part of that response today that Paul has to that charge. And then the third accusation was that he was preaching a gospel that was out of accord with the Jerusalem apostles. You're going to see in the first ten verses of chapter 2 that he's going to say, no, 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 I am in perfect accord, as a matter of fact, with the Jerusalem apostles. We are preaching the same gospel because those apostles in Jerusalem were looked upon, rightly, as pillars of the early church. To be in disagreement with them would have been a serious problem. And so that's what these false teachers are saying about Paul. Hey, he's not preaching the same thing that those cats in Jerusalem are preaching. And we've got an issue. So as I've already sort of alluded to, I just want to be really clear, maybe redundantly clear. We're going to be looking at Paul's response to that first charge and part of his response to the second charge or accusation today. And then we're going to consider just the gospel a little bit together and some implications of it for our church. That's my general plan for the next half hour, 40 minutes or so. So let's now consider the first charge or the first accusation that is being levied against Paul. That would be that Paul is preaching his gospel because he seeks to please men. You're preaching this gospel to please your audience, Paul. Look again at verse 10. I'm just going to read it for us. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That's a rhetorical question. Of course, I'm seeking the approval of God. And he says, or let me just restate, reiterate, or am I trying to please man? And then he answers his own question. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, he says. So basically, he's like, look, if I were trying to please people, believe me, I'd be doing something else. I would not be doing this. 
I mean, that sort of goes without saying, right? If you're familiar at all with the kind of persecution that Paul faced throughout you know, the decades of his ministry, he was no stranger to suffering at all. It's maybe another sermon for another time. But in part, what he's meaning is not so much the suffering and the persecution that he's enduring, though I think that's in view, but he's, he's getting at a, a clear biblical truth that, look, Jesus is not popular anywhere. Jesus is not popular with Jews, nor is he popular with Gentiles. For me to preach this message of faith in Christ alone, apart from works, for me to condemn your works as inadequate and to preach faith in Jesus as the only way of salvation is unpopular universally. So if I wanted to please the Jews, this is what Paul is saying, if I wanted to please the Jews... I wouldn't be preaching Jesus. I'd remain in Judaism. Because as we're going to consider in a moment, Paul was crushing it at Judaism, at keeping the law and the traditions of the fathers. He was killing it. So why would he leave it if I'm seeking to please my Jewish friends, my Jewish kinsmen? But then it's like, hey, if I wanted to please the Gentiles, I wouldn't be preaching Christ to them either. Because this is the same man, remember, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that the message of Christ is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's not as though Gentile people hear this message of Christ's righteousness in their place, Christ taking their penalty on the cross and say, yes, that makes perfect sense to me. No, there's always a bristling. And there's like, man, that's, that's folly. That's ridiculous talk. He's called an idle babbler, right, in Acts 17 on Mars Hill by the philosophers. This idle babbler, Paul. So Paul's gospel, the gospel, let me just be crystal clear, is offensive to all men. Without exception, it is offensive to us. It tells us, first of all, that we are sinners. That we are born in a state of corruption. That we are born fallen, ruined. By sin. That we inherited the guilt of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And therefore we are born not in right standing with God. It doesn't sound good. Who, who woke up this morning and said, yeah, that's what I would want if I could choose it? No one. Paul's gospel, the gospel, it tells us also that we can't achieve the righteousness that God requires. The law, we're going to think about this more later and we'll be thinking about this throughout this series. The law, when preached in its biblical absolute sense, it absolutely crushes us. Crushes us. And so for us to be told, because we all have this desire to vindicate ourselves. We all have this desire to achieve things on our own, in our own strength and on our own merit. Earn it, baby. We want to deserve it. Well, the gospel tells us flat out impossible for you to do that. To achieve righteousness. You can't do it. Nobody likes to hear that. The gospel, Paul's gospel, also tells us that our only hope is the grace of God in Jesus. So the only chance you've got, the only chance I've got, is unmerited favor from God. Earned for you by someone else, namely Christ. Right? It's not you in any measure. It's not The goodness that you possess somewhere inside, it's not what you are, it's not anything that you've done or will do, it's purely because God is gracious. 
and because God sent Jesus to accomplish your righteousness and to bear your debt and to take his wrath in your place. Nobody likes to hear that, naturally. And in the gospel also, it tells us that salvation, rather than being earned or merited or deserved, it's given. Salvation is given by God. It's God's gift by grace that no man may boast, humbles you and me, and it is given purely and exclusively through this mechanism of faith. Simple trust and reliance. I look away from myself, my works, what I am, who I am, and I look to another for my standing before God. Nobody wants to hear that naturally. And so that's what Paul is saying. Look, if I wanted to please people, I would be doing something totally different. I would not be preaching this gospel and all of its scandal and all of its offense to a Jew or to a Gentile. No way. So that's verse 10. And that's his response to that initial accusation that he's just a people pleaser. He's like, no, 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 not the issue. So let's consider now the second accusation, the second charge that's being put against Paul to undermine the gospel. It's that Paul is preaching a man-made gospel that he received from inferior teachers. He's preaching a man-made gospel that he would have received from inferior teachers. Because obviously these false teachers respect the apostolic teaching of the guys in Jerusalem. So it's not that Paul would have heard anything or been taught by a man that's the real issue. But it's the content of it. They're saying, look man, your gospel is not legit, it's not the real thing. It is a man-made construct. And our gospel, by implication, the false teachers would be saying, our gospel is the real one, Paul's is less than. So, how does Paul respond? He responds by asserting, first of all, you see this in verse 11. He says that the gospel that he preaches, or that he preached and still preaches to the Galatians was not, is not, man's gospel. Literally, it is not according to man. Hence the sermon title, the gospel according to God, not man, right? He then goes on to reiterate, verse 12, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it by a man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Primarily in view, I think, is Acts chapter 9 that we read earlier this morning, where Jesus essentially knocks Paul off his horse, you know, in this glorious manifestation of his presence and speaks to Paul and reveals not only himself, but the gospel to Paul. And then, of course, we know that that Paul, as he's going to describe, was kind of isolated for a season, set himself apart to the task, was involved in you know, being baptized in various things by Ananias, and we'll get into some of those things. But the point to be made is that his conversion was so clearly a work of God, and then his receiving of the gospel was clearly of divine origin. It was Christ revealing himself to Paul, and that's where he got his gospel. That's what he's saying in verses 11 and 12. Just as a side note, by the way, when you read an account like Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion in Acts 9, and you think, man, that's a miracle. You realize that your conversion was just as miraculous. I hope you get that. Like, what happened to you as a dead sinner in enmity against God 
no interest in the things of God, going happily or maybe in a troubled way, but nonetheless going toward judgment, wrath, all those things. What happened to you was not that, oh, you had an epiphany moment and you just kind of changed your own mind. God showed up by the power of His Spirit and gave you life when you were dead. I was talking with a brother this week. It's like John 11, right? When Lazarus is raised from the tomb. When Jesus says, Lazarus, get up. What could dead Lazarus do? Nothing. The one who gave the command gave the life in order to obey it. Because dead people obey the voice of God. And that's what happened to all of us who sit here in Christ this morning. So, that was just an aside, unplanned. But your conversion in mind, just as miraculous as Paul's, God did that for you. And so, after verses 11 and 12, Paul is now going to get into a story of his life. He's going to, he's going to refer to just, all right, listen, here's, here's a narrative of, of my path, guys. Let's talk about that honestly, beginning in verse 13. He's going to make the point further by pointing out the dramatic change in course that has happened in his life. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So he reminds the Galatians of what they'd heard about him. How he was a Jew and a zealous one. How he hated the church. How he was persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14. And I was advancing... In Judaism, beyond many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So not only was Paul a fanatic in terms of the persecution of the church, he reminds the Galatians like, hey, look, y'all, I was a rock star Jew, right? I wasn't just run of the mill. I was elite. I was one of the best. And he, he makes this clear in many of his other letters. I can't help but think of Philippians 3. When he'll talk about how with respect to righteousness according to the law, he was blameless, he'll even say. But I count that as rubbish because I understand that the righteousness I have is not my own, but it comes from faith in Christ. And so that's the point that he's making even in this letter as well. It's not that I was not a good Jew. That's not why I left it. You see what he's doing. You see what he's doing in the flow of his argument. The false teachers are telling the Galatians that alongside faith in Christ, works of the law and keeping the traditions of the fathers are necessary and they're accusing Paul of removing these requirements for some earthbound, man-centered reason. And so Paul is, is responding to that. You're, you're, they're saying, brothers and sisters in Galatia, they're saying that I'm removing circumcision and the requirements of the law for some earthbound, man-centered reason. You've got to be kidding. I have zero earthly reasons to abandon the works of the law. I have zero earthly reasons to abandon the traditions of the fathers. I was great at that. I was zealous for that. To the point that I was trying to destroy the church. Because I was convinced that it was blasphemy and false teaching, right? So what he said, the only reason that I would ever leave that behind is because I've been shown by God through a revelation of his son that the gospel does not include works or traditions. That's the only reason I would leave it. I think he makes his point pretty well. We're going to be looking more at the rest of his narrative through the end of chapter 1 next week. 
And before we, we launch into some unpacking and some implications here, I just want to make this, this brief comment. We're doing the book of Galatians in small sections on purpose. So part of it is because it's propositional literature. It's an epistle. It's not a narrative. Right? So that's part of the reason. But part of the reason is so that it will allow us to really soak in this, this book, this letter, the gospel, and to think about what does this mean on the ground for you and for me? This gospel that Paul is so vehemently defending. So it allows for a lot of implication, meditation, and, and application kind of stuff. It allows for us to connect Galatians to other passages in Scripture, which is helpful for us. And so that's what we're about to do now. So first, I've got sort of three sections that I want to take us through now. And I've got just like little words to describe what I'm doing. So I'm looking at this first section that we're about to embark on right now as a sort of unpacking of the gospel further. A further unpacking of the gospel in terms of what's underneath some of what Paul is writing as you survey his letter. So what Paul is contending for in Galatians by the inspiration of the Spirit, in large part, is an appropriate distinction between the law and the gospel. He is contending for an appropriate distinction between the law and the gospel. And he understands that when you mix and mingle law and gospel, it's catastrophic. I heard a joke one time. Some, some pastor that I, that I like or follow on Twitter or something, he was like, yeah, when you mix law and gospel, it becomes gospel, and it's just completely unhelpful. Right? It's true. We don't want to do that. And so Paul is very concerned for this, that we don't mix the two. And I think we are no different than these first century folks that Paul was writing to. We're very prone to mix law and gospel. So we often, and track with me for just a minute, what we'll often do on the one hand is relativize the law. We dumb it down to make it something that we can accomplish. Right? Well, this is what the Pharisees did. This is what the Jews did for centuries, right? They relativized, they so relativized the law that it became something that could be accomplished. And then on the other hand, what we'll do in sort of small ways is we'll turn the gospel into something that we need to do or that requires our effort in some way. So when you survey the life of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read these various accounts of him interacting with various kinds of people. You're going to see that he interacts differently with different groups of people. So if you were to go to any one, like just kind of open the Gospel and let it fall and read an account of Jesus interacting with a group of people. And they're asking him, what must I do to be saved? you're going to find that he responds differently to that question depending on who he's speaking to. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more even as we go here. And you'll find that as you read the Gospels, the things that Jesus gets most worked up about, generally speaking, he, the people that he really goes after are the people who trust in their good works to some degree. That's what he goes after with the most kind of vitriol and righteous indignation is that you think that you can do this. And I want to just illustrate with one pretty familiar passage. This is where we're kind of making connections to other texts. 
So the account of the rich young ruler, the rich young man, is a good example of this kind of law gospel distinction that Paul is after. Many of you are familiar with the story. There's a very wealthy, young, powerful man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know what the law says, keep the commandments. That's pretty clear what he's doing there. He's giving him law, right? Keep the commandments. And the young man, foolishly, of course, I mean, he says, well, I've done that. I've done it. So even when the young man says that he's kept the commandments, instead of debating with him as to whether or not that's true and applying the law to the heart level or anything like this, Jesus doesn't go there. He just ups the ante. He, he turns up the temperature. He says, okay, sell everything you have. Remember, he knows this guy, right? He knows this man. He sees into the hearts of men. So what I, I'm going to try to contend for this. What Jesus is doing in this whole exchange is he is taking the righteous requirement of the law and he is just dumping it on that young man's conscience, right? So the gospel, now let me be really clear about this account. The gospel in the person and work of Jesus is standing right in front of that rich young man. He just can't see it, right? The gospel is there. He needs, so what he needs is clear. He needs Jesus. He needs Christ's righteousness. He needs Christ's sacrifice for him. He doesn't doesn't see that, doesn't know that. And so what Jesus is intending to do, as I read that passage, is he is aiming to clearly demonstrate to this young man his utter inability to do what the law requires. So he's aiming, in one sense, to suffocate that man with the reality of his own failure. So what he's wanting at the end of it, he's wanting this man to repent. But he's wanting the young man to repent, not not so much of his bad deeds, but of his good ones. Right? And so Jesus, as I read that account, I don't think that what Jesus is saying, all right, bro, go have a giant yard sale and you'll inherit the kingdom of God. The whole thing, I mean, think about how it ends up, right? The man goes away discouraged because Jesus has just heaped these things, not only the law, but hey, sell everything you own. And the guy's like, I can't do that. I can't do it. Jesus knows he can't. And so then he says to the people ask, well, like, what's going on here? And Jesus will say that it's more difficult, you know, for a can or it's more easy, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person in the kingdom of God, etc. But this whole interchange ends with what? The disciples go, Jesus, they're warped out of their frame. Who can be saved? To which he says, well, with man it's impossible. But with God it's possible. All right, so what's he saying? He's not saying that by saying with man it's impossible, with God it's possible. He doesn't mean that God is going to make men able to do what they need to do in order to be saved. Namely, fulfill the law. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that God must do it. God has to accomplish salvation. So he means that the Messiah, when he says that it's impossible with man, it's possible with God, he means, as I understand the text, that the Messiah, that's him, had to come and is there to fulfill all righteousness and to be the atoning sacrifice and the wrath bearer for God's people. That's how salvation happens. 
So Jesus often does this. That's just one illustration. There are so many times when people will say, hey, good teacher or teacher, rabbi, right? What do I need to do to be saved? And he'll give them law, not gospel. That's often when he's speaking in a very Jewish context. He's speaking to people who trust in, in some measure anyway in their ability to keep the law. And he is aiming to crush them and smother them with their own inability and their own failure in living up to the law. But then there are other times where he gives people gospel. I could think of several. I, th- I think he in measure gives the gospel to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. But another one that's obvious. Now this, this man's a Jew, so this is interesting. He's even a, a leader in the Jewish religious community, Nicodemus. Jesus gives him gospel. When Nicodemus comes to him at night, wanting to understand what in the world's going on with the kingdom of God and all these kinds of things and how would I enter it and all those things, and Jesus will say, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, uh, I can't do that, man. And Jesus is like, exactly. God does that. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from nor where it is going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit, right? That, that in one sense, is gospel. It's apart from works. And it's in that passage, remember, that we get John 3.16. It's in that context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? That's a gospel passage. And so when we read the Bible, any part of it, the Old Testament, the Gospels, the New Testament, the rest of it after the Gospels, if we have this distinction between law and gospel in our minds, we'll recognize these things. And we'll be less likely to be just thrown all over the place by what, what it is, actually, what is required to inherit eternal life. And so, I'm going to think about this more in just a moment. Like, as far as the law is concerned, this is a nice segue into it, actually. When Jesus preaches the law, he does it in a way that is absolute. He does not relativize the law at all. If anything, he, as I said a minute ago, turns up the temperature on the law and the traditional understanding of it with respect to its requirements. So I want to move us now into a second piece. So we were just thinking a little bit more about an unpacking of Paul's argument of distinction between law and gospel. Now I want to think about an implication of the gospel. And the implication is this, is that the law needs to be preached in its absolute sense without creating loopholes or escape hatches. The law needs to be preached in its absolute sense without creating loopholes or escape hatches. And so what I'm thinking about here is I'm taking my cue from Christ in Matthew 5 when he says that he did not come to abolish the law but fulfill it. First of all, I would ask you to consider that. To fulfill the law is, I mean, take him at his word. I came to fulfill its requirements in full. Like, I am your your righteousness. That's more on that probably next week. But what does he do with two commandments in particular? He is going to preach the law in its glory and in one sense in its horror for a sinner because he's going to take it to the heart level. He's going to take it far from this relativized exterior place. He's going to take it to the hearts of man and it's not good news for us. So he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, right? And then he's going to say, well, I say to you that if you've lusted after someone who's not your spouse, you've committed adultery. What's he doing? He's not saying that lust and adultery are the same thing. That's not what he means. But what he's saying is that 
If you think that you are keeping the law simply by not sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, you are kidding yourself. To keep the law, thou shalt not commit adultery, means that you would never lust ever after someone who is not your spouse. To which every person says, I'm done. I'm done. And then he'll say, you've heard it said. Do not commit murder. Thou shalt not murder. But I tell you that if you've been angry with your brother or sister, you have essentially murdered him or her in your heart. Again, he's not equating the two. To get mad at somebody and to kill them are different things. Degrees of sin, right? So that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is if you think you have obeyed even that commandment because you hadn't killed anybody, think again. You haven't. You have not fulfilled the law in its absolute sense. You have fallen short. That's the point of that section of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he says that he's not abolishing that at all. I'm not not lessening the law's requirements on you, but I have come to fulfill it in your place. And and we're going to talk in just a moment about appropriate uses of the law. So let me me go there. So when, when I'm in this pulpit or Ron or Branton or any other man, for that matter, whoever gets up here to preach the word, what we need to do, an implication of the gospel, is that we need to absolutely let it rip when it comes to God's righteous requirements of us. I don't do you any favors by lowering the standard of the law. So in in other words, when we talk law from the book, I want the law. We need the law to land out here like heavy. Like, man, I'm feeling I'm feeling crushed. I'm feeling suffocated by this. Like, I can't do this. Like, this is not going to go well for me. That's the appropriate response. And that will make the gospel obvious and clear. And like, oh oh my gosh, that's amazing news, right? So that that I've just described is what is often referred to, excuse me, theologically as the first use of the law. It's a revelation of God's righteous character, his perfect, absolute standard. And then you hold that mirror up and you go, oh no, it's not good. And it points you to the Savior who fulfilled it for you. That's the first use of God's law. And I would contend that you can't use the law well that way when we dumb it down. And when we make it something that you and I feel like in any measure we can actually do completely. So if you ever leave here feeling like I'm a good law keeper, talk to me because I'm going to be concerned. In love, right? So then alongside that, though, like how to use the law like that. That first use is key. But then there's another use of it that matters very much for us as a church, as believers. And that is we want to be clear in the way that we uphold the law. And I would put alongside this the the exhortations and the imperatives of the New Testament, right? We want to hold those up as a good and clear guide for how we live. So we can do that, though, if we're really clear that like the law and its absolute standard, you could never meet it. But now we're going to use the law and the commands in the New Testament as a good and righteous guide for our lives. Then we can live together, right? Then we can encourage one another to do these things, to avoid these things. Then we can even correct one another like, hey, brother, have you, have you noticed this in your life? But it's not coming at it 
like we're a bunch of law keepers, right? We're coming at it as, hey, God has said this is good. God has said this is bad. And we want to do the good and avoid the bad. It's clear. It's common sense under the word and under the authority of God that we would want to live like that. But see, you can do that. We can do that and not... Like, we can be all for, let me just say it this way, we can be all for living life according to the righteous commands of the Bible and yet not be legalists because we understand what's going on here. We understand the intentions of God's law and that we could never fulfill it. Jesus has done that, but it is a good thing. This is when Paul will say, is the law bad? By no means. The law is good. The commands of the New Testament, the imperatives, the exhortations are good. And we should help one another to live by them. And then what's cool is that when we think in these terms, not only can we kind of pull for each other, with each other, and correct each other and all that good stuff, we actually have good and right motivations for obedience. Because then when we obey and live according to the book, it's not done out of this sense of fear and dread and judgment. It's done rather like, hey, I want, like, brothers, sisters in my life, like I'm speaking personally right now, like I want you to encourage me with the law and the commands of the New Testament. I want you to correct me as needs be with those same things. And then the reason I want that is because, and I trust you feel the same way, is it's like, hey, because God by His Spirit has saved me and given me life and eyes to see, I actually love Him now. And I'm grateful to Him now. For what he's done for me. And so like that's a motivator. For obedience and righteous living. It's not because you want to parade your own righteousness around. It's not because you want to bludgeon others to death. With like your own standards of of perfection or something. But it's because we actually love the Lord. And we care that we would obey him. And we're so grateful. Man God you've done this for me. I want to live in a way that you've said is good. Another motivator, though, when you've got this kind of understanding of the law and the gospel, another motivator, we'll talk about this a lot. We'll say, we want to do good works for what reason? For the glory of God. Amen. I would would contend that that's arguably the greatest aim of good works, is God's fame, God's glory. Well, I would, I would say that you can actually be freed up to really obey and do good works for God's glory when you understand the law and the gospel this way. When you're not all the time trying to do good works, lest God be mad at me, but rather I'm going to do good works so that he looks awesome, then that's a good motivation. And then finally, finally, Another great motivator for obedience is because we understand, again, by the Spirit of God and His work in our lives, we understand that to live as God has said brings us joy. To live as God has said is good for us. And honestly, it's good for everyone who knows us, right? Like, it's good for my family. It's good for my friends, the members of CBC. When we live according to the good commands of God, it's good. And I don't really need to argue for that. I mean, that's just obvious, right? That's at the level of maybe what, sanctified common sense that you would look at the scripture and say, yeah, it's clearly good that I would love my spouse. Like, or it's clearly good that I would not, you know, like, hate people, you know, that I'm in the church with. Like, if, you, if you're thinking, yeah, I think it's fine to hate my fellow church members, then we got to have another conversation, right? Like, that's, that's at the level of obvious, as so many of these commands are. <laughs> 
Third implication. This is our last piece. So we had a, an unpacking implication one, implication two, I should say, of the gospel and this distinction between the law and the gospel is that your assurance and mine, assurance that God is good with you can only be found in Jesus. So I would say that it's actually insane, like lunacy, to think that your assurance could be found by looking inside yourself, if we're talking in absolute terms, right? I'm not, I agree completely with the, the history of the church, with the reformers and others who would say that we can strengthen our assurance as we observe the fruit of God's Spirit in our lives. We can strengthen our assurance as we observe the transformation, right, that's really happening, even if it's small. We can still observe it and others observe it and they say, hey, brother, you've really grown. Hey, sister, you've really changed in this way. Of course, that can strengthen our assurance. But the point being that if we are talking in absolute terms of absolute righteousness that God requires, the only ground of your assurance and mine is Jesus. His work, His sacrifice. That's it. So, again, I think this is obvious because you have a conscience and so do I. When you are, or when I am laying on, when we're laying on our deathbed, right, so to speak, we're going to know. I think we're going to experience these thoughts. Many of us might. But we're going to know deep down that we could have loved more. We, we could have given a lot more. Right? I could have done so much more in service to the church and in service to God and in service to other people. I could have done so much more. And then on the flip side of that, we're going to be very mindful of like, oh my gosh, like I should have sinned so much less. Like It was not worth it. It wasn't worth it. I, I made so many mistakes. I was so foolish in this way, in this way, in this way. We're all going to experience those feelings, the rushing and the, the weight of that, right? So in that moment or any moment, I don't care, from between now and then, where is your hope? Where are you going to stand? The only solid rock on which to stand that could give us any confidence in that moment or any other moment is Jesus and what he has accomplished for us that is ours by faith. That's it. And we're about to take the Lord's Supper as we do every week. And I, I would say too, just pastorally, that this is a good posture for us to have as we come to this table. Because when you come to this table and you're aware, even thinking back on the last week of ways that you've struggled and failed, ways I could have done so much better, could have done more, shouldn't have sinned so much, that's true. True for every last person in this room who's going to take this supper in 10 minutes. It's true. But then what we do as we come is we realize that we're coming to the person and the work of Jesus represented by these elements. And we understand that what we're doing is we're feeding on him by faith. We are being assured that God is good with us when we come to this table. That's the point. So, yeah, like bring your inadequacy, bring your sin, bring your repentant, contrite heart over that to this table and look to Christ in faith and find assurance. So, all of this that we've just been considering 
and so much more, as we're going to see for the next 20-something sermons, is wrapped up in the gospel. We're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus apart from works of the law. He paid our debt and He is our righteousness. In this life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. That's the gospel. So join me now in, in prayer uh, as we conclude the sermon and then move to the Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your Son, whom you sent to accomplish our righteousness and to be our sacrifice and our wrath bearer. We thank you so much for him and for what he has done in our place. And we pray that you would continue to sustain uh, our faith. Those of us who have trusted your son, we pray that you would keep us believing and trusting in him. We pray for those who are in the room who don't yet trust Christ this way, that that would happen even today. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to change us by the power of your spirit. And that we would be able to live lives of simple faith and trust in you. And that we would live by your spirit in a way that's good for us. Continue to grow us individually and as a body, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.